May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I am deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. That was the COP26 president, Alok Sharma, holding back tears at the end of the two-week summit. But was Glasgow really such a failure? Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Spectator's podcast. I'm Cindy Yu, The Spectator's broadcast editor. And today we'll be reflecting on the highs and lows of COP26. We saw many protesters, but didn't see some wild leaders. New commitments were made, while backroom wrangling, as Alok Sharma found out, had mixed results. To discuss this and more, I talked to seasoned experts in the world of climate change and sustainability a few weeks ago. Harriet Lamb, CBE, is the CEO of Ashton, an organisation which supports and promotes sustainable energy and enterprises around the world. Emily Thornbury is the Shadow Attorney General for England and Wales, but was the Shadow International Trade Secretary when we recorded this podcast, just before the Labour reshuffle. And finally, Simone Rossi, the CEO of EDF Energy, who are kindly sponsoring this podcast. To start with, I asked Harriet Lamb what she made of how the government did on Boris Johnson's self-declared negotiating priorities of coal, cars, cash and trees. Well, you'd have to say that on some of them he made substantial progress, or rather COP26 and the nations as a whole, did make progress. That For the first time, we really did have a commitment in the end to phase down, not phase out coal, but nonetheless a commitment from the whole of COP to really make progress with coal, and that's no question a win. There were also wins on cars and wins on trees in terms of bold statements and ambitions, but the detail, really the hard work starts now to turn commitments, pledges, declarations into actual concrete delivery and plans on the ground. The area where absolutely it was a failure was on cash. And that's critical for keeping the trust in particular of the most vulnerable countries for whom it was an absolutely iconic moment that the 100 billion a year from wealthy countries to help the most vulnerable countries adapt and mitigate to climate change, that that absolutely has to be delivered. What in the end they said was, well, we'll put the money on the table next year, which at one point is better than when it was looking even further out. But I think that's the acid test. We have the wealthy nations have to put the money on the table to help those most vulnerable countries who've done the least to contribute to the climate crisis and yet are feeling the effects most heavily to help them adapt and change to it. So that's where, if I was in the government, I'd be wanting to focus all my attention. Mm. And Harry, I want to talk to you a bit more about developing nations and the money side of things in a little bit. But first, Emily, would you agree with that assessment that on three of the four different priorities, COP26 was relatively successful? Well, I don't think I've got much to add to what Harriet has said, so let me just concentrate on on the others then. On cars, although there is a grand kind of statement, which is that we're going to phase out internal combustion engines globally by 2040, it hasn't been achieved, obviously, in that four of the world's five largest car manufacturers haven't signed up to it. 
And neither is China, the US or Germany, who are the countries who make most of the cars. So I don't think we can really say that that's a great success. On coal, we've already heard, you know, that they changed the wording. But also, you know, the government plan for the developing world to stop using coal by 2030 and the developing world by 2040. And they said, again, you know, we need to look behind the rhetoric. They announced 190 countries and organisations had agreed to end the use of coal. But when you drill down into the detail of that, only 46 of them were even countries. And it included NatWest, right, saying that they were going to stop using coal. Well, that's nice. Um, But, you know, it didn't include China. It didn't include the US. It didn't include India. And of the 23 countries that signed up, 10 of them don't even use coal. So, you know, I mean, it's like, I think with a lot of this stuff, actually, as, as the dust settles and we look behind the rhetoric, we see that you know, maybe this is not quite everything that it was. And and their announcement on trees. I mean, you know, the ending deforestation by 2030 with no enforcement mechanism was so vague that even Bolsonaro signed up to it. <laughs> so I just think that we just need to be a bit realistic about this. And no, I wouldn't say that three out of four succeeded at all. In fact, I hope that I've covered all four now and that none of them are basically a great success. <laughs> Simone, would you disagree? I think what people feel is on many of these things there were steps forward made but steps forward aren't enough. Christiana Figueres who pulled off the very successful deal in Paris gave the analogy that if a bus is hurtling towards a child a step forward to save that child is not enough. You've got to run at full pace and give it everything you've got to save that child and I think everyone came out of COP feeling there were steps forward but that steps forward aren't enough. That's a really interesting analogy. And do you mind if I just kind of develop it? Because I hadn't heard that before. But I think that it's also, to be fair, and I want to be fair, the previous cops, it's easier for them to be successes because in a way they were gathering the world together and saying to the world, look, there's a bus turning the corner. And some people say, no, I don't see a bus. There's not a bus at all. You know, and, and trying to kind of get them at least to accept that there's a bus. And then as it got closer, you know, to start saying, we are at some stage in the future going to need to move that child out of the way. And then finally the world started to agree on that. But now we've got to the stage where the bus is right by the child and now we have to do things. So it's been easier, to be fair, for previous cops to be more of a success. But for this one, we had to have some action because you know, we have to have serious decarbonisation by 2030, halved by 2030, if we're going to keep 1.5 alive. Well, Simone, let me bring you in here because I'd be interested in you know, your overall feeling about the achievements of the summit. But also, in particular, do you think that there was enough said about nuclear and you know, that there's so much lip service paid to decarbonisation, but it just does seem like nuclear would be an easy way or smart way of doing that. But yeah. do you hear much about that? Maybe let me, let me first see, give my impressions as uh, Emily and Harriet have done. There is a lot of hot air in these summits, right? That's normal, right? It's a battle declaration, etc. And it's not hydrogen. But I think that, personally, I consider a great success even that we decided to have this declaration of phasing down as opposed to phase out coal. Okay. Because that is a testament to the fact that some countries have really engaged and compromised the discussion as opposed to sign up to an empty statement that would have been frankly speaking, probably completely unrealistic, you know. You wouldn't believe for a second that a country like India could actually phase out of coal Mm. in a relative short period of time. It's simply not going to happen. It's just impossible. So I think there is a sense that at least there is some 
true intention and meaning behind these words, and some of these words have been uttered for the first time. So I think that despite all the frustration that we all have to a certain extent to a lot of hot air, we have to be able to see under this hot air, you know, the real progress in some areas. And absent this scope, this progress wouldn't have happened. So I'm totally inclined to see it as a glass half full or at least a quarter full. You can choose the percentage. But without the COP, not even this progress would have been made. The second element is the, I heard Ariad saying, concrete delivery on the ground. Okay, So we have to take notice also of things, of countries. Take a country like China. They were criticized because, you know, maybe their leader didn't come. At the same time, we should take notice of the fact that China has announced recently to build 150 nuclear plants. So, you know, and they have the largest renewable program worldwide. So I have to say it's a mixed bag between declaration, physical presence, maybe grandstanding occasionally, but also facts. So I think when you step back, you see, is the world taking notice of the bus? And is the world actually starting to do something about it? The answer to me is yes, there is increased evidence of that. And speaking to nuclear at the end, I was surprised, to be honest with you, because I was at the COP for a day, and I saw these uh, youngsters in blue shirts to say, you know, a young generation nuclear, and affirming the fact that nuclear is part of the recipe for addressing this issue, and being able to be out there and to take also the criticism and the flag sometimes. We know a COP, there are many you know, green parties from various parts of the world which were almost born on the opposition to nuclear, so kind of an ideological problem. And seeing these youngsters, literally volunteers, you know, going there to say, to make a case, to say, okay, nuclear has some disadvantages, had disadvantages, but it has to be part of the solution. I found it a reason for hope because this is actually the generation that, you know, whose future mostly, you know, is in the hands of this. So I was actually overall really refreshed and energized even by this event notwithstanding the hot air. <laughs> I must say, I don't know if it's theological or not, but personally, I absolutely don't think we need nuclear as part of the solution. I absolutely think we have the solutions within renewable energy. We have them with wind and solar and that we can just take that to scale across the world. And that is a much more decentralised form of energy provision that also brings it much closer to people and, again, helps involve people in this transition And I think to try to get ourselves out of one set of problems in the climate crisis by doubling up on another, the nuclear solution, so-called solution, I don't think is a solution. I think that's exchanging one set of problems for another set of problems. Simone, do you want to react to any of that, for example, Harriet's point about nuclear? Well, maybe just uh, on day two of COP, there was no wind. As a result, we also still operate one of the last of the Mohicans, one of the last coal stations in the UK, we were asked by National Grid to turn it on. We almost have no coal left on the plant because the plant is soon to be decommissioned. Mm-hmm. We actually had to import Russian coal via truck. So just to be honest with you, in terms of sustainability, just good luck with that. But, you know, there was no other way to keep the lights on. Just to give you a sense, for an entire day, out of 25 gigawatts of wind capacity which is installed, only half was available. So 24 and a half were not available. So what I'd like to say is that if we were able to store energy for a long period of time, you know, we would have the answer. We don't have it yet. Yeah, batteries are the thing, aren't they? If you have a battery in your EV, okay, because we we all know, right, if we take an 
electric vehicle, it's a battery on wheels also, mm. right? So if you say, ooh, if it's very windy, we are all very happy. We really have the Saudi Arabia wind here, and you've got lots of abundant energy, cheap, etc. When you don't, if it lasts only for one hour, that's fine. But sometimes you've got a high pressure, and it lasts for three or four days. So what do you do then? You say, well, if you have energy in your car, you can put it into the grid. It's going to last for two hours, and then nobody could drive anymore in the country for a week. Yeah. And we need to turn the light off. You know, just there's no solution. I'm not saying for a, to keep the lights on. The only solution is to burn fossil fuels or to have a nuclear station. Today, well, there's no about, other well, solution, well, no well, proven solution what about, known um, to people. What about, I don't want to talk about fantasy stuff, but I thought that there was something realistic in the possibility of being able to use wave power. I mean, we have lots of waves, you know, whether the wind <laughs> blows or not, they're always there. Or tidal power, which I thought was also yeah. another thing that, that, you know, again, is completely predictable. Yeah. The tides will come in and out twice a day. So yeah. I genuinely don't know what's you happening see, so, this is all true. so I think, you know, net zero, we need to quadruple the amount of energy in Britain, mm. of electricity mm. from zero carbon sources, mm. quadruple compared to today. Okay, so all will be needed. All will be needed. It's not a case of something against each other. Yeah. All will be needed. Now, that said, some solutions are proven, so they work. Yeah. They could have advantages and disadvantages. For example, the renewable has huge advantages in many, many areas. The disadvantage is that sometimes, you know, the wind isn't blowing or etc. So it is interruptible and this is an inconvenience, but it's just the nature. It is the way it is. Nuclear has a different profile has other advantages, each completely uncorrelated to weather, it just runs flat out, but it produces spent fuel, which is a type of waste, which is well managed and controlled, nonetheless, it is something that we'd rather do without, you know, mm. I completely accept that, but you know, what is the mix of things that we will yeah. need to get to this quadrupling of energy and gain sovereignty and keep the lights on, remember, because in the country, the citizens, you know, will not accept to have to, you know, say, okay, we go back to the Middle Ages, we forget, you know, our, you know, warmth or etc. So we have to be able to guarantee that. So there will be a mix of proven solution and a mix of solutions that people have been working on, wave, etc. Just to, to be honest with you, there is a power station of wave in France, La Rance, between uh, uh, Bretagne and Normandy, actually. It has been running since the 60s. And it's precisely like you said, the wave comes in and comes out and produces. This station has been money losing forever. That's the reason why it hasn't been replicated, because there are problems with silt, with etc. So it might seem silly, but, you know, something so interesting and almost kind of obvious to say, mm. that's the force of nature, let's harness it. It's proven so far, you know, very, very difficult to do. What about, what about saying, the wave power? You have little ducks on it, and they're actually not ducks. There are, they're there the are ducks. also the ducks. There are many, many experiments, etc. And I, and I think we should try everything. Right, okay. The only problem is you cannot only, we have to edge our bets. You cannot only put your fishes on something, on your, your chips, on something that you, you, <laughs> right. you're not entirely sure is yeah. going to work. So I think we should test 
the breadth of things. Yeah. Meanwhile, the main solution is win for Britain. We need to keep investing. It's fantastic. You know, what Britain has done is better than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And in a way, Britain is a legitimate COP organizer this year, if nothing else, for the success yeah, it had yeah, in yeah. this journey. It yeah. should continue. So I'm not arguing that we should change course or anything. What I'm saying is that it will not be sufficient in isolation. Other things that will have to come into the picture. Yeah. Some things are proven today. Some things are yet to be proven. For example, long-term storage of energy. So let's work across all of that. Mm. One day will come when we'll have better solutions than nuclear. Fantastic. You know, but my point is we need to keep the lights on in the meantime. You know, the yeah. citizens won't like it the moment they say, oh, oh, the lights are off. Because <laughs> at some point there will be no more complaints. And what do you do, right? Yeah. So that's very important. Harry, I'm keen to bring it back to um, COP26 as well. And we talked a little bit about the countries involved around the table. For you, for Ashton as an organisation, you've got a particular focus on developing nations. But I wondered what your thoughts are on the paradox that climate change presents for developing nations, by which I mean, for a lot of them, fossil fuels are the cheapest and fastest and probably essential way to go through an industrial revolution. On the other hand, they might be the biggest victims of climate change. And I think we can see some of that contradiction in India, for example. What do you think about that? Well, I think you're absolutely right that it needs to be addressed in all its complexity and that there are differences, though, between, for example, the vulnerable and the small island states who are absolutely up against the climate crisis now. It's already too late for them, frankly, and that's where it's so important that countries do address the question of loss and damage, which was one of the issues that didn't get resolved at COP and that absolutely must see more progress on, which is about wealthier nations who have become wealthy on the back of an industrial revolution that has caused the climate crisis. So in all fairness, for us to pay for the loss and damage for those countries in the front line already is only the right and proper thing to do. So I think that's one of the key areas that there needs to be more focus on and that the small island states were absolutely strong about that and their assessment that COP had failed them in neither halting climate fast enough nor in looking at how to help them redress and cope with the issues. And on the other hand, you have, as you say, got big countries like India, like Brazil, like China, or South Africa, actually, as well, where they're dealing with both, both using coal and themselves feeling the impacts of climate change. And that, of course, is where a lot of this now comes back down to the discussions within those countries and the politics within those countries to help enable them to make that shift away from coal. And, well, at the same time, addressing the fact that, you know, there's 1.3 billion people worldwide who have no access to electricity at all at the minute. And the solution for that is undoubtedly to go through renewable energy as a cleaner technology that enables you to reach villages, far-flung villages, much more easily, and that can help generate, actually, the green skills, the green jobs and livelihoods of the futures. So we have to welcome the steps that were made forward and really look to the politics within India, within Brazil, within China, to help make sure that these countries can make that transition in a way that is fair, the the just transitions it's called, both within those countries, but also at an international level as well. Emily, what do you think the role of developed countries, whether it's governments or organisations from the developed world, is in reconciling that? Because I feel like in a lot of the conversation we have around climate change, all we do is berate 
big polluters like China, not really realizing that actually if the lights turn off in China, you know, that's a big humanitarian disaster. Do we recognize that enough when these countries are saying, no, we can't get rid of coal just yet or something like that? I mean, I think there's two things I'd like to say about that. I mean, I think the first is that we should be honest about the fact that it is much easier for us to get to net zero, given that most of our manufacturing is done in places such as China. So we have to kind of think about that. Actually, that's a real challenge for us. But I think that there's another thing which I'd kind of like to sort of flag up, which is the role of UK export finance. You know, which is, it's under the control of the Trade Secretary. And, for example, there was an investment in an oil pipeline in Mozambique as recently as 2020. You know, CAFOD has said that 97% of UK export finance energy spending between 2010 and 2017 went into fossil fuel development. So here we are, you know, when we are investing money in the developing world, what is it that we're investing in? And I think that we need to kind of hold government to account on that. You know, so I think that it's a great waste. I agree with Harriet. You know, imagine if we were investing that sort of money in renewables Mm. instead, as opposed to, you know, oil and gas exploration in the developing world. And The Guardian found recently that between 2018 and 2019, UK export finance support for fossil fuels grew 11-fold to 9 billion, while support for renewables fell. I mean, Mm. this is the reality of what we're doing. So... As I say, I think that it's always very important to look behind the rhetoric because action is what matters and things like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really right, Emily. And a lot of the organisations that we work with are working at the grassroots to help bring energy to people for the first time very often. So uh, to give you one example, there's an amazing group of women in Yemen, just 20 kilometres from the front line, where working with UNDP, they've been able to set up a little small-scale business with solar panels, which enables people to have energy, Mm. and including shopkeepers able then to, to have a fridge, and then they can sell cold drinks. And so it had that sort of ripple effect of helping the local community, both managed to have electricity, but also to help businesses. And I think those are the examples that people are at the grassroots, they're finding those solutions every day, even in the most difficult situations, yes. as in Yemen. And what we need to see is how can we make sure that these the sums of money that are thrown about are actually flowing down also to those smaller initiatives within the developing countries. And supporting and really listening to what people are saying. And it was really interesting. I was able to speak to an indigenous leader at COP who'd come from the Sapara Nation in Ecuador, who's absolutely clear they don't want carbon trading. They don't want all these deals. They feel they, as the indigenous people, have cared for the trees for centuries. And what they're just saying is leave the oil in the ground leave the trees standing, let the air be clean and leave us with our rights to look after this land in the best way. And so I think it's really important that alongside at a COP, you always get the the global leaders and the big pledges, but that we're all the time looking at what are people doing on the ground? What are the most vulnerable and the most affected people calling for as well? And Simone, what do you make of the way that the British government has managed relations with China, especially on matters of climate change, renewable energy, nuclear energy? Well, it's a difficult question that you're asking me. What I'd like to say is that I think that the UK government is a true leader and a credible leader in zero carbon trajectory. As I said, because Britain has been on this journey for 20 or 30 years now and with concrete achievements. And I would say that have been continued 
despite the changes in government, you know, Labour, Tories, you know, uh, <laughs> Brexit, non-Brexit, etc. So that seems to be a true leader nation, a nation that has been able to increase its GDP by maybe two-thirds over the last 30 years, and whilst reducing emissions by two-thirds. So again, it's very hard to find other countries in the world which have done that. And the UK is not a tiny country. Okay, it's not as big as China. So I understand, you know, for China or India, it will be harder, right? China is 20 times bigger than the UK. So like you said, Emily, of course, they do a lot of manufacturing also for us. So that is a reality. So these guys in China are not going to be able to, you know, flick the switch from one day to another and change the entire system. You know, it's just such a huge country that is just unimaginable. You know, you just need to scale things up to a level that is completely different. So I think that probably what we have to do in the Western world, maybe, is also to to really accept that China is no longer what maybe it used to be 50 years ago, etc. It's really a very sizable superpower, you know, with uh, lots of manufacturing, lots of activities, and therefore they really need to find their own way to go down this path. Although I recognize that the question you asked me is, is fraught with problems, because of course we know that in terms of, you know, political issues, human rights, and all sorts of things, you know, there are maybe different approaches, etc. And sometimes it's really difficult to see eye to eye. But I would say, for me, China, if you compare China and Brazil, for example, I think Brazil in COP was very long in communication and very short on facts. You know, China was the other way around, very short on communication, almost absent, but actually much stronger on facts, okay? So if I have to say, from a world point of view, and saving the phantomatic child from the bus being run over, I think that China is actually doing more than Brazil. And Brazil is yeah. trying to, to be more vociferous, but it's not really doing much. So I think we need more facts than words. And so in this sense, I respect a lot for what China as a country is trying to do concretely, is concrete on the ground, right? Yeah. Yeah, the US-China pledge sort of sent a, a jolt through the conference venue, didn't it? Everyone was going, <gasps> sort of gasp, but that, oh, here is a moment, actually, of cautious optimism, having been so worried that China didn't seem to be there, actually was, did this open some ways forward for actual action on the ground, as you said? Next year, next COP is due to be in Egypt. Let me just, just put this kind of idea in. And it's going to be at Sharm el-Sheikh. And there's two things that I would say about that. I mean, the first is, is that obviously Shamashek is on the edge of one of the most beautiful coral reefs. <gasps> and if temperature goes up to, is it two degrees? There won't be any coral reef left. So there's kind of like that poignant background to it mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. But also the Egyptians do have a very close relationship with the Chinese. Mm. And I just think there's a kind of, you know, both of those things, and I was cycling in, into this pod today, you know, just thinking about those two things and thinking it will be a very different type of cop. But what we don't want, you know, for the next one, you know, where there is an opportunity to possibly bring China in more with this good friend of, of Egypt and against the back. We don't want to have all of these blinking delegates, you know, snorkeling around coral reefs that will be dead in five years' time and they won't have done enough to, to save them. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to look forward to that, Emily, because that's, the next COP is going to have a focus on Africa. So these issues that Cindy was asking about will absolutely yeah. be to the fore. And I think it, hopefully it will be harder for rich nations to walk away from their responsibilities when you're actually in Africa. Yeah. I think that 
focus both on reaching those people who have no energy now, but also on enabling the transition away from coal to be a just transition, in particular in South Africa. I think we can expect to see those issues really high up the agenda. And I think it's also welcome that sense that from this COP that actually they will come back every year now and try to ratchet up their commitments. Mm. And so we have now a year to really have that build up from throughout civil society and from the private sector to make sure that where the commitments of COP26 fell short, we can make the next steps forward, the next leaps forward, I should say, at the pace that we need to at COP27. I agree with that, but I think we have to also have, as I say, it has to also be at the top of any agenda of any international meeting as well. So that it isn't just, you know, the pressure from civil society and the holding, but I think that also actually just before you can talk about anything else, let's just talk about your commitments and where we've got to. Can I play with a random idea following on your suggestion? Because, Emily, you shared some facts about, you know, subsidies to Africa, for example, that I was not aware of, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it stems from my previous experience in the past, I was actually in charge of activities which included, you know, developing a hydroelectric project in Cameroon, okay? Mm-hmm. We ended up finding a way to finance it through the World Bank, etc., etc. So it's now happening, and I'm quite happy about it. So, and given that the next COP is in Egypt, and there would be a natural focus on Africa, you know, there is, like with all technologies to produce electricity, also hydro has its own downsides and advantages. And there has been a movement globally also a little bit against hydro, I have to Mm. say, to be honest with you. One of the flip sides of that is that the only plants of certain size being built in Africa are coal or gas, okay? Mostly coal, to be honest with you, at the moment. So whereas there is a huge untapped hydro potential still available in Africa, and I'm not saying for a second that hydro has no disadvantages because sometimes you need to flood some certain areas. You may have to displace some people. So I'm not simplifying it. Can I suggest maybe, I think, Harriet, you probably are in an organization that is following these COPs or these events more organizationally, you know. My idea would be to say, can you guys or you girls actually consider hydro as part of the things that could be done in Africa and therefore could also merit support? Because you say, we throw money into the continent, but to do what, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be one object for me worthy of attention. I know there is a lot of untapped potential. It is uh, absolutely compatible with climate change. And I think there is more to be done on hydro and less to be done on coal or on gas in Africa. And maybe COP in Egypt could be an opportunity to have this topic of conversation Mm. amongst others. That's a really nice place to end on. But before I completely end the podcast, I wonder if I can get the three of your opinions on the to-do list for Alok Sharma over the next 12 months of COP26 presidency. Briefly, Harriet, maybe you can start just in one sentence. What do you think is one thing that Alok Sharma needs to be doing in the next 12 months? Oh, it's absolutely making sure that the cash is put on the table, that we do pay the most vulnerable countries and that we help them adapt and that we get the money on the table as well for loss and damage. But I would also say I do think the whole question about watchdogs and regulation and accountability is also critical. That if people are going to make commitments, that we've absolutely got to have that follow-up to make sure people are delivering on the ground as well. Emily? We have to have a way of binding in the big polluters and there has to be enforcement in my view, because otherwise we are not going to halve carbon by 2030, which is not. And finally, Simone? 
I think Alok will have uh, things of which he's proud, rightfully, and things where he have regret of not having been able to achieve. So I think his to-do list is to go back on his regret mm. and tackle the unfinished job from his point of view, such that the next cop has a chance of ticking the box that he has not been able to take, despite his effort. Brilliant. Simone Rossi, Emily Thornbury and Harriet Lamb, thank you so much for joining the Spectator podcast.